Hungry Trilobite podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon is Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention. The next event is scheduled for June 24th through 26, 2002 in Norman, Oklahoma. However, they need your help to put on the next event. Please visit SoonerCon.com to find out how you can help make SoonerCon 30 a reality. The Hellmouth Convention The Hellmouth Convention is a celebration of all pop culture, but specifically things like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. It is held in Los Angeles, California, and the next event is scheduled for June 3rd through 5th, 2022. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship Fund. For more information, go to thehellmouth.org. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bostig, and I'm going to be your host. Today I'm really excited to talk to Paige Feldman, a writer, screenwriter, podcaster, and filmmaker, and we have a lot in common when it comes to how to have fun with a movie. Let's get started. On tap today, we have Paige Feldman. How you, how you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Aaron? Great. Glad to have you here. Uh, been bouncing some notes back and forth for a while i just finished the first episode of your podcast uh how to fall in love the hard way yes thank you for listening (laughs) glad to and had a great time with it and i got to know your stuff because you are trying to address a need in screenwriting that i don't think people realize is a need right now and that is the need to have something funny out there (laughs) We've witnessed the slow demise of the rom-com and you're actually the only few people notices that it's gone and is trying to bring it back. Well, I hope that I'm, I'm one of many and hopefully people follow me or come out of the woodwork and aren't, I guess, ashamed to admit it because one of the things that I notice a lot, um, because I'm pretty active on Twitter and I follow a lot of, um, romantic comedy filmmakers to a degree and also a lot of romance novel writers and a common thread um, in both discussions across both films and books is that romance is not seen as serious or uh, important and I think that that's just so silly because what's like in life people generally are looking for love and happiness and fulfillment and why is it such a terrible thing that we have these optimistic, hopeful stories about such a basic part of life coming out into the world? Why, I don't understand why that's not considered just as serious or important as um, pessimism or stories about you know, the George Clooney's depressing drama about how the ice caps are melting. <laughs> that's a really good point. And I mean, I'm coming at it at, from a place of I am the guy who is thankful that there are so many Star Wars movies and comic book movies. And like, I am that guy. I'm not saying mm-hmm. I'm not, but there's as much as I want to see humans talk about these parts of our imaginations, there's something much more familiar with the types of stories you're talking about. And there's absolutely a place for that too. And I'll say as somebody who watches these three, four hour epics, sometimes, sometimes I just want a little of what my best friend and I used to call cotton candy. Yes. Yes. And like, I mean, like Mary Poppins said, spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So I'm Mm -hmm. also, 
it's not um it's not for me it's not only about creating stories that make you feel good and uh take uh, not about it's not only about creating stories that make you feel good it's about finding ways to put important conversations within these within this content too so in how to fall in love the hard way um I'm recording episodes two through 10 now. We just wrapped episode nine a couple days ago. And it's there's a lot of discussions about race and sexuality and uh, what it means to be in a relationship and things that we all struggle with. And it's, it's, it's funny and it's heightened, but there's still these conversations here and hopefully they can spark deeper thought among people who are just listening to try to escape um they, they find something else there i so said when we have something a little bit lighter i mean like you said that the spoonful of sugar does make the medicine go down a little bit better it adds context it adds balance to the way we're mm -hmm. viewing art yes and it all and life isn't all good or all bad right so there's 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 more realism there i feel also also i like being happy like there's nothing wrong with that no there isn't <laughs> and when we have so much out there that is just the message of the end of the the world is at stake i came on we've spent several years feeling like the world was constantly at stake i think we could use yes. a different story yes and i think stories just in general i i I'm a huge horror nut too. I just, I can't write horror. It always ends up being funny and not mm -hmm. intentionally. Uh, but the uh, the most interesting horror to me is when, it's not when the world's ending, it's when somebody's world is ending. Like the, uh, you know, the, the new house that they thought was secure is actually full of monsters. That doesn't affect anybody outside that house, but to the the protagonist, that house is their entire world. And that specificity, I think it just creates a larger connection for me as an audience member. And so I try to bring that, what is my character's world and how is that going to end that question into a lot of my writing. And it ends up being maybe something small, but if you can show how these people are able to uh, show how important that one thing is to these people, it feels bigger and you can get people to empathize with you know, like she's all that. The the character's world will end if she feels accepted and then gets rejected again. And we all relate to that, but that's even in high school, it's so minor, but it's it's not in the world of the character. That's everything. It is, and that's the way we live our lives. That's mm -hmm. the way, I mean, we embrace this idea that whatever we're focused on is the most important thing in the world, whether that's, you know, pursuing a partner, whether that's getting a job, whether that's finishing school or, or you know, increasing our health, whatever we choose to focus on, it becomes our world. So to always be going toward, you know, stories of people who are literally trying to save the world, that's, we're just playing one note of a very large song. Yes, and it's, it's almost too large of a song to comprehend at a certain point, um, because the, uh, I remember in math class when I was in like seventh grade, the teacher would uh, would would say that human human brains can only really see a series of five to seven numbers at a time. 
can only really comprehend how many numbers that is. And so when you're talking about the whole world, it's, it's big, it's huge, but your mind can't really focus on what that actually means. So, you know, I love superhero movies too. And the um, Avengers uh, Endgame, when the snap happens, you can't imagine 50% of the world leaving. That's Im impossible. But you watch Spider-Man just go away and that like terrified look on Peter Parker's face. That's all you need to know about what's happening. And that's why I think those movies have been so successful despite being about such huge stakes. And then you turn it around and you watch a movie that, I and mean, we talked about some of our favorite rom-coms the last time we chatted. Mm -hmm. And we, we both found a moment where it's like, yeah, I connected with that character in this one moment when it's, it's a, just one line of dialogue or one look on their face and instantly their story is yours. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Like listening to, uh, you know, how to fall in love. It was, you know, I was instantly taken back. I don't recall if we were talking about how old the characters were. Um, I just turned 40 a couple months back. But instantly, like listening to that, I was 24 again, because those were the kinds of conversations <laughs> and the kinds of moments that you have at that point in your life. And, you know, if you're still single, maybe still. Yeah, the, uh, the characters in the show are, are all 30. Um, and that's, I think 24, it's actually interesting you say 24 because I realized kind of halfway through recording that I have these characters as 30. They're, it's set in St. Louis, which is my hometown. And most people like living in LA now, 30, unmarried, still dating, that's the norm. But like in the Midwest, it is very unusual to have 30 something characters especially those who have lived there their whole life who aren't married and settled down in some way just because of the cultural changes. But that's, I, I chose 30 for them because for me, I'm of 36. And when I turned 30, I had this whole crisis here of why isn't my life exactly where I thought it was going to be when I was 18? Because 30 mm -hmm. seemed so old back then. And mm -hmm. then it was just, oh, I'm just still figuring things out. Why am I a perpetual child? why haven't I just had the like adult gene injected into me? And that, you know, existential crisis as it was kind of fueled the writing of the show because the, uh, you're like, no one ever, I, I think as I get older, I'm learning no one ever actually grows up or has anything figured out. It's just, we get better at hiding it. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was, a you know, I had a very similar path, maybe at a slightly different age, when you realize that the, first of all, I moved from Pennsylvania to Oklahoma City. So wow. a very similar, you know, transition on life expectations. And, you know, suddenly being around people who were getting married at 22 and 23. And, you know, I, I kind of part of the impetus for making that move was I felt like I was missing the boat on getting my life on track and realizing I hadn't even gotten started. And it takes so long to come to that conclusion. Yeah. And then, you, and then at least for me, I lost so much time worrying about expectations that I sometimes feel, I wonder what I could have done if I had just been as easy and laissez-faire as I am now, but you gotta, you gotta walk through fire in some way, even if it's just like a little tiny fire to get to that place of comfort. 
I always hear people talk about the idea and it's not an uncommon trope. It's like, you know, what if you could be young again? What if you could do it all over? But they always want to add the caveat that, but you know everything you know now. You never mm. get to live it over again not knowing a damn thing. That was never the deal. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's interesting because if I, being young again and knowing everything I know now, young again, young is so, so relative and it's so much it more is. about a state of mind. But if I were to, you know, go back and be 21 again and know everything I knew now, I would probably be insufferable as a 21 year old because there's certain aspects of being younger that people assume that your confidence is unearned or your knowledge is naive or so even even if I knew what I knew then what I knew now I don't know if I would have been taken seriously enough or had the same experiences because I wouldn't have been I would have been a different person mm -hmm. um and this this idea that you like I, I just I've the more I think about it, the more I wonder if you can actually change the past and um, time travel movies are like where you can change the past feels like wishful thinking and more than it feels like what would actually happen if someone was traveling back in time or in some sort of eight time loop. I have to ask, and I did not plan to bring this up, but the, the, what you just said is the perfect setup. Are you a Star Trek fan by any chance? I am not. I, it's funny. I, I've actually never watched an episode of Star Trek. I watched half of one of the movies this past summer when I was um, a bunch of uh, friends that we all rented a house in Maine for a, a week and we, um, as I made dinner one night and someone turned it on, turned on the Star Trek movie in the other room while I was cooking. Um, that's the most Star Trek I've seen, but um, I have two cats and actually they're, uh, they were my fiance's cats first. And so that's why they have these names, but they're named Kirk and Uhura. So <laughs> I've never seen Star Trek. <laughs> well, okay. I, I only bring this up because of one thing. And this is something that, again, it shows the, the different perspectives you put on your the things you watch as you grow up. Um, my favorite show is Deep Space Nine. The character of Jadzia Dax, when I first watched it at 12 years old, I didn't get it because she is a girl and well, woman in her early 20s, just out of the academy, but she has several lifetimes of memories in her. Mm -hmm. And what I don't get, because, you know, at, you know, a 20-ish person, when you're 12, she's old. She's yeah. an adult. Everybody's a grown-up. They're all the same. I rewatch it in my 20s and 30s, and I realize she is a very young person to everybody else there. And you see that person, and you think, oh, she's pretty, and she's smart but she doesn't have life experience. And the, the, the key of the character is, but she does. The one mm -hmm. weakness she should have, she doesn't. And that's what makes her fascinating. So I think, man, if we could be that person that you just described, we'd basically be Jadzia Dax. <laughs> that does sound fascinating. Now you've just made the most compelling case I've ever heard to actually watch. I, Star Trek. <laughs> I, I, we could talk about this offline, but it's like, this is, this is what made sense to me and why I wanted to rewatch it as an adult because like oh there's a person here that I can understand now having this connection having this life experience that I didn't have the first time around and I have more of it now than I did then yeah so I, I mean I wonder if if these you know comedies and that's another thing I'm tired of things not being funny I like to <laughs> laugh and I can see you do too 
it's like I, I want something that's actually funny and and that it stimulates a part of our brain that we don't get to as much anymore mm-hmm. yeah and the I, I love I love comedies but I feel like romantic comedies have generally stepped away from being comedies as well it's more seems like it seems like people define romantic comedy as lighthearted romance more often than not and there is nothing wrong with that and I love a good soft fuzzy romance but then you watch something like um long shot which is the most recent i think example of what a true romantic comedy is the charlie theron uh, seth rogan movie that's to me is like an update of the american president uh and i was laughing out loud in the theater and i hadn't done that in a romantic comedy well first of all i hadn't seen one in the theater forever but hadn't done that while watching a romantic comedy in a very long time, unless I was, you know, rewatching *Romancing the Stone* or *Working Girl* or *The American President*. Um, and just love is funny, and sex is funny, and it's all very awkward and confusing. And it's not, you know, *Top Gun* blue light filter, take my breath away, with curtains fluttering in the breeze. Usually, like you smack someone in the face accidentally, like. <laughs> weird stuff happens and i want to be able to capture that yes and that the 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 awkwardness of it i love that you picked that up it's like if that's what makes things funny because that's what humor is and we're afraid to be awkward we're afraid to be not sure on our feet but that's how we live our lives Mm -hmm. i i I had a script that i was working on quite a while ago i'll never use it so i don't mind just throwing this out there (laughs) but i i had this bit where these i talk about this couple and i show a flashback to how they introduce themselves to each other and basically this dude was in college in a restaurant at two in the morning guess what i did a lot of two in the morning i ate cheese (laughs) okay and he gets mad and he waves his hands around he knocks the little bowl of coffee creamer dispensers off the table (laughs) it rolls on the floor she's a waitress she bends over to pick it up and he knocks his soda on top of her head as she's bending down (laughs) and that's how they and that i just thought that that's how people actually i I thought it was a great bit that's it's funny and it's like a good meet cute that in real life if that happened it would just be oh sorry and then everyone's humiliated and goes in their corner but Mm -hmm. then you can just parlay that into a love story Mm -hmm. in a movie and that's I mean, there's talk about realistic, but a lot of it isn't realistic. And that's kind of part of the charm of it. It's almost a wish fulfillment, fairy tale sort of what if, what if love was as easy as this, even if it's not easy, it's still, it it just looks easier when people just find each other, who you know, from the get-go are meant to be, or a good fit, or will be a fun match. And then when they have an argument, you can make sure that they say all the right things exactly how you would want to say them and not how you would think about saying them 20 minutes later although that would be a good bit too (laughs) well the beauty of having a script is that you can bypass all the time something like that happened and it didn't become a romance that might have happened a hundred times but that one time it was the right person and it clicked a script has the ability to cut out the other 99 exactly exactly and now I'm, now I'm just thinking that I need to write a scene where somebody doesn't know at all what to say. And then they go and barge into the other person's house 20 minutes later and says everything, <laughs> which would be great on its own. There, there's definitely something to be said for the fact that we so often come up with just the right response and just the right comeback a, an hour or a day or two later. 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you wouldn't do that in real life, though, either. You would just sit there and stew in your shower. Was That's usually when I think of the right thing to say is in the shower the next day. And mm-hmm. then you just never say it because that would be weird. But in a, in a movie, you can go be weird and it'll still work out because that's what the genre is about. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're talking about how, you know, you come up with the perfect thing to say and, and this, you always have just the right line. And some of my favorite bits from any rom-com are where it's clear that, or at least they're acting like they don't know what they're saying, that they're just running at the mouth. And it's, when it works well, it's brilliant. Yeah, I love, I love those scenes as well. I've tried, I've written um, quite a few into the remaining episodes of How to Fall in Love the Hard Way. And um, the character of Claire, who um, is played by Rebecca Hausman is, and I wrote, I, going to tangent and then I'm going to come back. Um, So I wrote the pilot independent of any casting. I actually wrote it as to be a filmed pilot, but then the pandemic happened and I wanted to make something and recording uh, an audio show. We do it live via Zoom where everyone records their own audio and then um, they send me the files and I edit them together, but they're all in the room together so that the characters can act off each other. Uh, which is a really fun experience, but I, I wrote I wrote the pilot as just a pilot, adapted it for audio, cast it, and then when it came time to write the remaining episodes of season one, I had all of these actors who all of a sudden I knew what their voices were and what they were good at, and Rebecca, who plays Claire, she can talk like an auctioneer, and she just goes fast, and so I wrote all of these, you know, quarter page long monologues for her that she can just zip out like that and also make it seem like she's just she's talking before her head can figure out exactly what she's saying and it it's just created some of the best we we were talking we were recording on Tuesday uh finishing episode nine like Claire's just this chaos monster who <laughs> go who, who goes gung-ho on whatever she's doing but doesn't quite know what's happening <laughs> half the time and it's to your point it's 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 very fun to have those big speeches that just feel like they're coming off the tip of a tongue and Rebecca is great at doing them so we talked a bit about again about our favorite romantic comedies and we had a lot of fun doing that is there one that you would a style that you would like to bring back that maybe you're trying to evoke uh, my, so dialogue wise, I love, dialogue is really my, is, is my, is my favorite thing. I love, I write for rhythm and I love, uh, Howard Hawks' His Girl Friday, where it's, there, it's just so many words on the page and people are overlapping and talking over each other and you don't know where to turn and you can't stop listening or else you're going to miss something. And so that, and then the Aaron Sorkin, who I think is sort of a modern day Howard Hawks in terms of that kind of dialogue. Uh, the American president is just full of so many little zippy one-liners and great side conversations where the, the supporting characters all clearly have a life of their own. I mean, obviously because the West Wing then was based off of the American president. Uh, and so that, just paying attention to that rhythm and having people speaking over each other and 
uh, in, in in a realistic manner, that's that's one of my favorite things to do is is create chaotic conversations with way too many people to be practical to shoot, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> you are muted, Aaron. <laughs> what I'm noticing there is you're talking about having fun with the chaotic conversation. And that's a bit better, I think, than having fun with the chaotic situation, which is another very popular trope that, you know, you, you just, you have this couple that has this really weird, bizarre situation and they have to fall in love beside, in spite of it. Yeah, I, for me, the people are, are paramount in all of this because you can't, you can't have a successful romantic comedy if you don't care about the characters falling in love or if you don't, I don't like you saying likable because you shouldn't, having someone likable, it means they're kind of boring. So someone who's in, two people who are interesting or if not interesting, then relatable, who are very clearly good for each other, even if you hate them. Um, and that, so it does, if you have that good relationship, you don't necessarily need a bunch of chaos there because the relationship should be full of conflict anyway, because the idea, the central thesis, at least in my work, is how love helps you grow in other areas of your life and lifts you to being able to succeed in ways that you might not if you didn't have the support and the push of this other person in your life, wanting to make you better, wanting to make you, who's empowering you to take risks. Really good point. I like that a lot. And yeah, I, it's so, I wonder if people are intimidated by the idea of just worrying about what the character's core crisis is. If, if just wondering if, you know, the internal struggles are, is something that we're almost afraid to talk about these days. I, so I, I do a lot of study of screenplay structure and screenplay guru stuff, which is, it started out being a way for me to basically look for a magic formula of how can I just make this story appear on the page without doing any work? And then it turned into just, I'm, I'm interested in how things work and how a screenplay works. All the structure gurus are basically deconstructing screenplays that have already been written and seeing how they work. And the the thing that I've noticed in all of these guides that I've read and I've done, you know, Sid Field and Save the Cat and Stealing Fire from the Gods and Story, the Robert McKee one, it's all, everything is based in, well, what happens next? How does this scene move the story along? How does it move the plot along? What's the thing that you can see on the screen? And that is all very important. I'm also sometimes very bad at finding tangible things on screen. And so my characters eat a lot. Also, I like food, <laughs> but the, uh, I, I think the focus on plot from these guides that are lauded and recommended, and I think they're rightly recommended for beginners because you need to find a place to start and learning structure is a good way to be able to figure out how to make your put your story on paper but plot is not necessarily the most important thing and, and the way we think about plot maybe should be examined because 
plot can be two people in conflict, you know, sitting and talking while they're both eating a sandwich and one of them likes mayo and the other one likes mustard. And that can be symbolism for how things are moving forward, but also visually, maybe not the most interesting as if they are being chased by a mobster in a car arguing about mayo or mustard. <laughs> and a lot of times, if that ends up being the, the way it's, it's played out, it almost has to be funny that, you know, they're in this extremely dangerous, serious situation and the thing paramount on their minds is the mayo or mustard. Right, yeah. And I mean, I do, there's a, again, some of my funniest, my favorite bits I'll see in a movie or a TV show is that when the, the, the external conflict is secondary, but more prevalent than the internal conflict, which is what's preoccupying. It's, it's, but if it's a case where the mayo or mustard really is what's, you know, everything is really hanging on that, it's distracting, you know, if the monster's chasing them or the mobster is chasing them or yeah. the sandwich is chasing them. I don't know. Right. <laughs> I mean, and then there's also like What's Up Doc is one of my favorite rom-coms. It's uh, Barry Bostwick and Barbara Streisand and it, the, the literal and not Madeline Kahn also, who's a comedic genius. And the, the main conflict there is that Barbara Streisand is annoying. <laughs> she just hangs on Barry Bostwick all the time. Um, it's like, it's similar to House Sitter actually, the Steve Martin Goldie Hawn one where it's, you have, you have all these, you have all of these external circumstances like Barry Boswick's in San Francisco for some sort of conference and Madeline Kahn's his fiance, but the real, uh, the real conflict is why won't this woman leave me alone? And in House Sitter, there's a big house and Goldie Hawn tells a lie and Steve Martin's conflict is again, why won't this woman leave me alone? So you have a bunch of stuff happening, but that's not where the plot is centered around. And I don't know what point I'm making, but both of those films are great. And it, they are. And, and <laughs> yeah. I, I, I might have brought up House Sitter last time because I love that movie so mm -hmm. much. And it is a good example of, of the, what I was talking about before. It's a an absurd situation. Mm -hmm. And and that's where the comedy is built on because it just they keep upping the ante of just how much of a misunderstanding all this is. And they both have their own interests for keeping the misunderstanding going, which just again mm -hmm. ups the ante, it becomes a cycle. But that's not a bunch of people at a dinner table just trying to understand each other. Right. And that's, there's just a place for that too. When that works, I think it's ideal when you can actually have, I'm not saying, because, you know, movies are a visual medium, not to be, to belabor the point. Yeah. So you want to have something visual, but like I said, it's not the easiest thing to shoot. It's not the most interesting thing to shoot unless you've got a genius director, hope so. Not sure where I'm going there either, but yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I, I love that we're starting to flesh out the different varieties of comedy out there because we've forgotten that. Yes, yeah, and there's also there's also like I love Wedding Crashers, mm -hmm. which is a romantic comedy, but it's also about friendship and that that mashup of this you know there's a the the primary friendship relationship and then how they relate to their um the their love interests it's sort of secondary but it also very much informs this friendship and i i think that we're i i i love one of the reasons i love doing how to fall in love the hard way is because the central story is about the three main women and they have their romantic relationships but it's always about how they're coming together at the end and i think highlighting like 
romantic comedies tend to have the friend character is like, oh, this is how you should handle your relationship when really, when there's a new relationship in our lives, like the fr our friends are usually more important than whoever we're dating at the time. And like, I, I just, I, I enjoy, I enjoy all kinds of relationship comedies. And I like when the, the friendships aren't given short shrift and it's not just the friend character. It's, there's a whole relationship there. Uh, while we were talking, I'm actually sitting here thinking of some of my favorites and I would say, wait, but that's not really a romantic comedy so much as it is a buddy comedy. Mm -hmm. And I thought of those, I thought of Tommy Boy. I thought oh, yeah. of Three Businessmen. Yeah. Uh, and these are all, but you know, they have sometimes romantic component, but it's, it's the, the connection between the characters. And I'd be glad to see a resurgence of the buddy comedy too. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. And the, I, I have, I like, I, I just, I love exploring relationships and I actually, I wrote a feature that is, I guess it's out of post now. We had a casting crew screening a couple weeks ago and it is, I'm, I'm calling the genre coming of age in your thirties because there is a romantic relationship in it, but the primary relationship is actually a father son relationship and it's an estranged father son. So it kind of feels like this buddy comedy in a way. And, um, I, just, I, I like the friendship stories, especially because they are about how like growing up doesn't stop once you age out of the teen movie category. We're all learning, we're all growing, we're all figuring things out about life. And I would love to be able to highlight that more and have that highlighted more. I had a gentleman on a couple months ago now uh, by the name of Reese Brown, who we talked about the idea of having a coming of age in your thirties when you're, you're not so much, you know, just falling in love for the first time or learning to stand on your own TV. The, the typical coming of age stories, it becomes a matter of you start to understand where you want to go as a person. You start to realize that you have control over your own life in a way that you never thought you did before. And because mm -hmm. for a lot of people, your thirties is, is a really tough time of life because mm -hmm. it's, it's when you're, financial responsibility tends to be at its highest and you've lost a lot of the momentum you had in your youth but the the benefits of building your career and your relationships hasn't quite kicked in yet you're at that that horrible middle point in a lot of those transitions you might be losing parents you probably have young children you you tend to just have a lot of them short end of the stick in a lot of areas of your life yes yes and there's and you're learning to while you were talking, I was actually thinking a lot about how the graduate, if it was made today, wouldn't necessarily be about somebody who just graduated college. It might be about someone who just graduated from an MBA program or from law school after doing a career change. Because a lot of the themes in the graduate of, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my life. Um, I have the whole world open to me. I'm gonna maybe make some reckless choices. I'm going to have a poorly uh, thought out romantic relationship with the woman I'm lo in love loves with mother. These are like, not the, I mean, that's a very specific circumstance, but these are things that people are more thinking about these days in their thirties with the economic crash and all of the, um, just the difficulty of getting a job with a degree that you have. These aren't just concerns for people in their twenties anymore and learning that the world isn't fair is something that you just kind of keep it bite it can beat you down <laughs> especially as you're you feel like you're old enough to have figured things out and you realize you are not 
No, um, my buddy for a long time said, if you haven't seen Empire Records, you have to see it. Mm -hmm. He kept harping on this movie and I watched it. Finally, I was probably just hitting the end of my 20s at the time. And I was like, this is not a bad movie, but I'm not getting it. And I realized I just caught this movie too late. Yeah, it, it, this is one of those movies that you have to want be in that spot in your life where like dancing around the music store is the best thing that that could ever be. This is the highlight of everything. And if you hit it at the point where this isn't the best it's ever going to be, when you already have that revelation and you're relating more to the, the shopkeep who's like, you just fucked up my inventory for the month. It, when you're that guy, it's past that point in your life. Yeah. <laughs> And I actually haven't watched Empire Records since I graduated college because that's what I've been told is you're going to lose the magic of like having a concert on a rooftop or the deep feeling of I'm just going to shave my head because everything is terrible mm -hmm. or just, just all of the whimsy is going to be lost on you completely. And I want to keep that part of that, that, that special memory close in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's so many times that you hate to go back to some movies because they they capture either a moment in history or a moment in you that you can't repeat. I, I the the road trip movie is now different because we're never totally losing contact with people anymore. Mm -hmm. We can always text mom and let them know that we're doing okay a thousand miles away. When that's not an option, man, that it changed the map so much. Yeah, yeah, and the I, I mean. The one thing that I have, I've found, I've been with horror because I love horror and there's all of the, you know, oh, we've lost signal in the desert. No one loses signal in the desert anymore. Uh, you, you never, the, iso the uh, isolation doesn't really exist. I went camping over 4th of July weekend and my signal was at full bars the entire time. And I was in the middle of a state park. <laughs> <laughs> I will say living in rural, I don't live in, I visit rural Oklahoma quite a bit. Um, and I can show you some spots where things are very, very bad in cells reception yeah. wise. And that actually does make me feel like I'm in a horror movie just because it is so rare, <laughs> but I know exactly where these spots are. And I'm like, this is where those people are going to hide the bodies still that's right here <laughs> until they put up another tower. This is a spot where they could get you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the, uh, they, they did close that loophole um, for the small part of Yellowstone National Park that was in Montana because Yellowstone is all technically in Wyoming. And, but then there's the part that's in Montana that's not in Wyoming. And it's, it, there was some very strange legal loophole that basically meant that you couldn't be charged for murder if you killed someone in this part of Yellowstone National Park, but that apparently they've closed that loophole. So seems like no, that's the don't kind of thing. Kill anyone, yeah. Anybody. I'm surprised that we didn't address that sooner. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you want to drag your feet on. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they just figured that someone would figure out how to charge somebody for murder if it ever came to that. <laughs> you would hope, but my confidence level isn't high. No, no, mine neither. <laughs> I am having so much fun just swapping ideas about movies with you here because I don't get the chance to have these chats as often as I'd like. Um, but what are you working on now? And because you already mentioned some of your project, what's the very next thing on the horizon and, and where can we keep track of it? So um, 
there's so there's two things first how to fall in love the hard way will have new episodes dropping hopefully starting in december it depends on how fast i can edit them because i'm a one woman band behind the scenes here with the exception of my composer uh, john drabecki who's fantastic and also a great writer too um he's in my writing group uh that so that was lucky uh so that how to fall in love the hard way can be found on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, basically anywhere you listen or you can just go to howtofallinlovethehardway.com and you can be linked to the RSS feed. Uh, then I am, the, the time loop um, opinions that I shared are kind of based in the next feature that I'm writing and I'm actually planning on it being my directorial debut. So it's called Kaleidoscope and it is a romantic comedy, of course, uh, about a lawyer who, hates her job and a stand-up comedian who suffers from panic attacks and has intense stage fright um, and how they get stuck in a time loop in the worst night of both of their lives and they kind of hate each other they fall in love and the theme of it is that you can't change the past because the past has already changed you and you can uh, find out all about that I have a YouTube channel uh, where I am documenting every single step of the process. I just dropped an episode where I live outlined the script with screen share on. Uh, and the because I don't have 100 subscribers yet, I can't get a custom URL. However, if you go to watchkaleidoscope.com, um, it'll take you to my website and you can get links to the channel. I'm going to put everything in the show notes of this episode on aaronbossig.com. So if somebody needs a shorthand link to anything, I'll make sure they get it. And awesome. yeah, because these are projects I definitely want to follow. The, the movie especially is something that's like I, the concept alone is interesting because it, it's, it's comedy. There's just a little bit of genre elements there just to make it extra interesting. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, my reference points are Palm Springs, Sliding Doors and being John Malkovich. So. Very, very good pedigree. Well, Paige, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I'm looking forward to getting this out on the feed ASAP. And I would love to have you back anytime. Thank you so much. I'd happy to be back anytime when I have more, more updates, more to share. Happy to come chat about movies all day. I can't believe it's already been, what, like 45 minutes? The time mm -hmm. has flown. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And like I said, this, this, this is a great meeting of the minds here. So let's do this again. Absolutely. I would like to thank Paige for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. For the community building part of the show today, that part where we talk about how to grow the show that I promise costs you nothing and takes less than five minutes of your time, I would just like to reach back to the idea that we were talking about earlier that there are some types of movies that we're just not seeing these days, or some types of books or TV shows that have fallen by the wayside. The romantic comedy is one thing we mentioned here, but there are others. And if you have a suggestion for a type of genre that you'd like to pursue bringing back, reach out to me at bossigpodcast.yahoo.com or on my Twitter at Aaron Bossig. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.